Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker. We've got a fantastic podcast today. It's going to begin with a bit of um, relationship advice, Sarah. Very, very quick, short relationship advice that I've given before. It's a teaser for what's going to happen later in the podcast. But here's the very short relationship advice. Find someone who loves you as much as the board of directors of the National Rifle Association loves Wayne LaPierre. But we'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. Talking about the bankruptcy or kind of, sort of, maybe not bankruptcy of the NRA. We're going to talk about the Facebook Oversight Board's decision to uphold the removal of Donald Trump from the platform uh, and what it means, uh, what comes next, and what the heck is the Facebook Oversight Board and why does it matter? But first, but first, we have a special guest. Do you want to introduce Sarah or do you want me to introduce? Oh, I would love to. Okay, go for it. McKay Coppins and I first met over a milkshake at Bullfeathers, (laughs) which those of you who have ever worked on the Hill or visited D.C., it's right next to the house side and sort of a local watering hole. Uh, reporters, it's a very popular thing to ask, uh, someone out to coffee to meet them, but I don't drink coffee and neither does McKay. And that (laughs) started a long and fruitful relationship based on delicious, delicious milkshakes. Uh, McKay was a Buzzfeed, I think when I met him and my, how stars have risen. McKay stood out (laughs) even then from a young age. Uh, he is now a worldly Atlantic writer, I think has really found his groove, writing long forms on politics. Although, McKay, and I've told you this before, my favorite piece I think that you've ever written was about the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints tradition of stocking foods at your house. Uh, And I just thought that was such a beautiful piece. We'll put it in the show notes because I think that that gives you more of an insight into McKay than any of his other (laughs) stories. But Why is McKay on advisory opinions, you may ask yourself? Because The Atlantic is out today with a piece published this morning, Is Brett Kavanaugh Out for Revenge? Three years after his polarizing confirmation hearings, the Supreme Court's 114th justice remains a mystery. Byline, McKay Coppins. Now, McKay knows this. I think he is... uh, I mean, one of, although I'm hard pressed to think of someone better, but I'll just, I'll keep it at one of the most talented reporters out there right now. Uh, my favorite long form writer right now. Uh, and I hated this piece. So <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, McKay. Wow. Such a, such a, a detailed introduction <laughs> And, and such a friendly introduction, setting up that shiving, right? Right as we're about to start. Um, I, I, I feel like I need to, to gird myself for this, uh, for this interview. Uh, you told me you were writing this piece a while back. And uh, we've talked about the court on and off for a while. I want to start with your process. You're a political reporter most of the time. Mm-hmm. How do you approach writing about the court? How long does a piece like this take to write? How do you find sources? Like walk us through a process before we get to what you actually wrote. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right that I should say up front that I am not a kind of veteran court watcher, Supreme Court expert. I do not pretend to be in this piece. Um, 
I came to the subject because I write a lot about, as you said, national politics uh, with a specialty in conservative politics. And in kind of the post-Trump era, I felt like a lot of the kind of center of gravity was shifting to the courts, right? Where you were still seeing conservative power being flexed, it was in the judiciary on the Supreme Court, which is now decidedly conservative or at least right-leaning. And uh, and so that's kind of where it started. My editors were the ones who were interested in Brett Kavanaugh um, and, and kind of pointed me in that direction and said, just see what you can find. And so, uh, you know... The, I did not start out with like, you know, dozens of sources in inside the Supreme Court. So this was actually a more difficult reporting process than a lot of my magazine pieces. Um, you know, I had to spend a lot of time cold calling former Supreme Court clerks and, you know, friends of the various justices and uh, kind of, you know, uh, begging them to talk to me. <laughs> and so, How many people would you say you reached out to and how many people would you say you actually spoke with for this piece? Oh man, that's a good question. It, how many actually ended up talking to me? It was in the, you know, low dozens, probably, you know, 20, 24 plus, I would say. How many did I reach out to? At least twice that, probably more. Um, I, I Actually, definitely more because at one point, I literally just went through the Wikipedia that has all the like Supreme Court clerks listed, you know, for yeah. over the last several years and just like sent emails to almost all of them. <laughs> so so I, I I reached out to a lot of people. And and you know this, um, Sarah and David probably, like there is a very what I found was the culture of the Supreme Court is d- entirely different from any other institution I've covered, right? Like I've covered the White House, I've covered Congress, I've covered presidential campaigns, but there is this like code of omerta that Supreme Court clerks especially abide by, where it is really hard to get them to talk about um, their former bosses, to talk about what they saw behind closed doors. And honestly, it's admirable in a lot of ways. You know, like they they really take seriously the idea that if they're going to be allowed to uh, kind of witness the deliberations over these really important issues uh, that they shouldn't just go blab about it to reporters. That said, I did get some to blab about it to me. And, <laughs> um, and, and I also, you know, talked to a lot of people who knew Brett Kavanaugh at various points in his life. And again, like I didn't necessarily think of this piece as a, and this, I'm curious, Sarah, what your objections are. This might be at the root of it, but um like, I didn't see this as a, a jurisprudential analysis of, of Brett Kavanaugh. Like, it, if you read it, there definitely, I, I hit on some of his decisions and some of his kind of uh, judicial philosophy, but it's not the center of the piece, in part because the thing I was actually most surprised by and interested by in reporting, and this isn't specific to Brett Kavanaugh, is how much messier and kind of more personal the internal dynamics of the Supreme Court are than I realized. Like, I I think I had bought into the idea that a lot of Americans have of the Supreme Court as these kind of nine enlightened, like above the fray figures who are just going into their chambers and then dispensing wisdom from on high. And, you know, it's certainly... Uh, there are aspects of the the process that are like that, but there's also interpersonal dynamics and internal politics and, uh, you know, personal, you know, grievances and status anxieties and politics and ego that all play into this because they're human beings. And I ended up being really fascinated by that and how, in particular, Brett Kavanaugh's 
very contentious path to the Supreme Court, the confirmation battle might influence his approach to uh, to to being a justice. And so that that was kind of what I ended up being uh, most focused on in the piece. Okay, where do I start? First, let's just start at the at the silliest. One, <laughs> it says the Supreme Court's 114th justice remains a mystery. That is accurate that he is the 114th overall justice to serve on the Supreme Court. However, the Supreme Court actually distinguishes between the number of chief justices and associate justices. They changed that <laughs> a few years back. So I found it interesting that you declined to follow the new model of counting justices <laughs> in the Roberts Court. So that, uh, that, that if that's is, the if if that's the entirety of your beef, Sarah, this is going to be a much less interesting conversation. <laughs> Than I thought. It's it has changed when they now uh, swear in new justices. They use the count of associate justices, right, not right, the right, overall right. count. And I mean, you know, you know, here at Advisory Opinions, we don't shy away <laughs> from the footnotes of Supreme Court coverage. David, look, we we laugh at this, but there is a fact checker at the Atlantic who's going to hear this and be extremely upset. So I'm sorry <laughs> to that fact checker. Uh, that we didn't, you know, discuss that that specific uh, situation. For all I know, actually, the fact checker did and made the decision that 114th was better. But I will, uh, I'll, I'll leave that to them to, to talk about. Okay, but more to my um, larger beef. And it's interesting that you said you were trying to cover more of the humanity of what it is to be a Supreme Court justice, because actually, that was my beef. I felt like you covered this like it was Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi and didn't treat the court as enough of a different institution. They're not like Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi. There's not the kind of log rolling that is assumed, the kind of political expedience that I think is assumed at various points in the piece. Uh, to give an example, for instance, you talk about when uh, Justice Kavanaugh gets to the court and Justice Ginsburg... Uh, says, you know, some nice things about him, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, and you frame it in such a way that it's um, as if they are doing it for political reasons, not acknowledging the possibility, you know, you say like trying to, you know, perhaps win him over on an opinion when it counts um, and not acknowledging the possibility that maybe they really just believed that that confirmation hearing was total bullshit. And so they actually believed what they were saying. Whereas I think when you're a political reporter on the Hill and everyone's thinking about their next move and the strategy that like, yeah, reading into someone's comments in the press, uh, there is more to that. Whereas, you know, when Ginsburg took grief for saying that, you know, this is our work family and it's just as important as our personal family, that Brett Kavanaugh was a very decent and very smart person. Maybe she just meant it. Maybe there was no politics behind it. Maybe she wasn't trying to get his vote. I know it's mm. your job to like, that's not mm. an interesting piece, but I thought you missed some of the humanity of what it's, well, what it's actually like when you're in a monastic environment with only eight yep. colleagues day in, day out for what might be the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, okay. Let me, let me respond to the specific there and then pull back because I think okay. the specific complaint you have here is not totally fair, but the broader argument is more interesting and, and, and actually is a point of contention even among the, my sources and the people I talked to. So the specific idea that I didn't allow for the possibility that they actually just really believe that, I don't think that's totally fair. I actually write in the piece that Kavanaugh's future colleagues 
were primed for sympathy uh, for over his confirmation uh, process because, as I write, the justices had long been united in a shared disdain for the confirmation process. Yes, um, but you and also this something- write the liberal justices knew Kavanaugh wouldn't vote with them on a regular basis, but they hoped they could pick off his vote occasionally when it mattered. Having a relationship See, would help. And to me, and to me, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Like I think that it's both true that there is clear internal politics going on and also that these justices, including the liberal justices, hate the confirmation process. They hated his confirmation process, but they also kind of hate confirmation processes in general. I I heard this again and again from people who are close to the justices. They hate, they can't, the grandstanding senators, the media, the, the way that it's turned into almost a campaign with attack ads running on TV. Like, they all kind of feel like they're above that. And so all of them kind of, you know, relate to on some level how partisan and how vicious Kavanaugh's confirmation process was. So to me, it's it's not mutually exclusive that you could both not like how his confirmation played out and also see a political opportunity, as in particular Elena Kagan did, I think. Kagan is known as somebody, as I report in the piece, who's always kind of seeing all the angles and thinking about the politics. And, you know, I think, as I write in the piece, she knew Kavanaugh well before he became a Supreme Court justice. She actually hired him uh, to teach at Harvard Law School. And so, you know, they had a relationship beforehand, but she also felt like at this moment, as he was coming onto the court after this extremely dramatic confirmation process, there was an opportunity to make a show of allying with him in hopes that that would, you know, help going forward. So I don't think those two things are in in conflict. But Sarah, to your broader point, I do think this is an interesting conversation we should have, because the question of how much politics there actually is on the court, like how much uh, the interpersonal dynamics of the justices and, uh, you know, actually influence the decisions is an is a real point of debate, and I would I would talk to tons of different people. Some you know some former clerks would would completely dismiss that idea. Other former clerks would say, "Yeah, look, I would never say this publicly, but that actually matters a lot." You talk to other I, I you know other people in the judiciary, and they would say, "Yeah, like it, it's not as simplistic as um, you know log rolling on the hill, as you point out." But it's it's not a non-factor either. So I'm curious what you and David think about this. Like, do you do you reject the idea that the interpersonal politics between the justices uh, has any influence on the way that these decisions come down? It has a lot of influence on the way the opinions are written, how narrow they are, whether someone writes an additional concurrence. uh, No question about that. Does it have an influence on the way the decision of the case comes out? I I think quite rarely and in a way that can't really be captured in the political style of reporting. Uh, I look, let me summarize my overall like thing here. I think you as a political reporter have um have a lot of political readers. Like they're used to reading political news. And I think that in a profile, the the best thing that you can do is bring those readers to the court instead of bringing the court to those readers. And I think overall, I felt like 
And look, David, I want you to talk about the confirmation aspect of this piece because I am right. still too angry about it. And I, I actually, I know we have a podcast <laughs> and that I'm supposed to be able to put things into words. It's literally my job. Um, I've tried really hard uh, over the last few days to come up with a way to talk about this and I can't. So David, I'm hoping you'll take that part on. Um, you know, people talk about how they were radicalized by that process. Um, you know, folks on this podcast know I have a relationship with Justice Kavanaugh. I am not uh, unbiased. I am not a neutral party. To watch someone you know go through that is one of the most <laughs> most awful things. So David, you take it. Uh, yeah. So okay. Well, where where do I begin? Um, so number one, I, um, McKay, I, I honed in on the very same passage you used to defend yourself against Sarah as, okay, yeah, there is a lot of shared disdain for this process. But then there was something else that I thought, if you know, if you sort of know the arc of Elena Kagan, um, that I thought, ah, Justice Kagan is Justice Kagan. And one of the interesting things about sort of the history, her history prior to the court is she came to an incredibly contentious Harvard Law School. Incredibly contentious. I mean, vicious place, vicious place. Um, I have this PDF that's open in a tab of a story called Beirut on the Charles that was written about the law school before she got there. <laughs> and, and the funny thing about it is, you can pull out pull quotes about Harvard at that point, and it sounds like it was written about the battles over wokeism and cancel culture, et cetera, today. Well, it I was mean, about critical today. race theory back then. That's what's sort of fascinating about it. That's when critical race theory takes over Harvard Law School. So, yep, it was as contentious then as it is now. Yes, exactly. And so the interesting thing about the Kagan arc, which I thought was fascinating about your story, was she comes in. And she walks in and she says, I love the Federalist Society. Sarah wore a T-shirt. It said, I love the Federalist Society, you know, quoting just, uh, well, she wasn't Justice Kagan then, but Dean Kagan. She hires Kavanaugh. The reach out to Kavanaugh, to me, seems like completely consistent with that entire history that she has. You know, it, was, there, uh, was there something behind the charm offensive towards conservatives in law school that was sort of like, um, Politicking, maybe sure. I guess was there something very genuine about it as as far as like who she is? I think so as well. It was really interesting, and I've told uh, advisory opinions listeners this before. When she was nominated, um, a lot of there was this effort behind the scenes to organize Harvard law students against her, conservative mm -hmm. Harvard law students yep. against her. It was hard to find them who were willing to go against her. And, well, and one person on this podcast did the exact opposite and, in fact, went to the White House press briefing to endorse her nomination to the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, I'm not sure who that was. It was producer <laughs> Caleb. It was producer Caleb. <laughs> anyway, I'm, so I'm, I am, um, I just found that as an aside. Now, on to the confirmation battle itself. So I don't, I don't know Justice Kavanaugh at all. Never met him. So I don't have that relationship. Also, nobody, I don't think anybody could fairly accuse me of being light on uh, or excusing towards sexual assault allegations. Um, a lot of my work 
has been exposing, especially some of these abuses within the larger evangelical community. So I'm not easy on this stuff at all. Uh, I'm also an advocate of due process. Uh, and, and I think here's what I, here's what I think when I, when I read your piece, what I wish people would do is place in better context, the progression from Christine Blasey Ford to the Swetnick gang rape Mm -hmm. allegations, which landed right before, you know, he came in very angry. Um, And how unbelievably, you know, so the Blasey Ford situation, when that came out, I wrote a piece and I said, look, if her allegations, if there's a preponderance of the evidence that it's true, he should not be confirmed about Blasey Ford. However, at this point, I don't think there's a preponderance of evidence that is true. And then the allegations got more specious and more specious, sort of culminating in this gang rape allegation. And I think the thing that is that is um, sticks in the craw of a lot of people, and I'd be really interested in your analysis of this, having talked to a lot of people, um, is has there been a reckoning for how specious some of this stuff got, because it's often treated as if, well, there were allegations and he got mad about them, as if there's no sort of underlying evaluation of them. Um, and and there's as, as if, and it also that there was a frenzy around it. Like I, I remember tweeting doubtful, uh, tweeting doubtfully about the Swetnick allegations because I just read the story and I thought, this story, I, I would not, print this story. Like I, I would not print this story <laughs> and, and just getting gang tackled by all kinds of respectable people for expressing doubt about a facially bizarre allegation of gang rape. And I feel like there isn't context placed around that, that it went, it wasn't just sweat. I mean, a Blasey Ford allegation, allegation, there was a progression there that was increasingly specious. And I, you know, just, just from my standpoint, what were people saying to you about that? Um, because as I read it, I, I think, man, it is really, really understandable from a human point of view that Brett Kavanaugh would be deeply, deeply wounded. Yeah. That, well, this is a good point. And I, I should say that I, I made the decision um, at some point in the process, I don't know if it was while writing it or, or, or in the reporting process, but I, ha- I felt like I, ha- I had to make the decision to essentially not relitigate the accus- every accusation in this piece, in part because um, they have been so, like, you know, picked apart and written about and covered that I, you know, I wanted the piece to break new ground, basically look at him as a Supreme Court justice and looking forward, right? But but here's what I'll say about uh, about what you just said. The, the there is no question that his anger and his reaction in that in that kind of infamous Senate hearing was a reaction to a ramp up of of accusations, not just Christine Blasey Ford, right? And and it's not even just what we saw playing out in the media and on Twitter. It was also that. He was be you know he had this kind of team helping to get him confirmed, and part of the process was every other day he had to get on the phone 
um, and answer questions about the latest accusations. And it wasn't just stuff in the media. It was every crazy accusation that came in through the tip line. Right. So it would be completely outlandish things. And he had to sit there and answer, like, did you do X, Y, Z? Insert insane uh, accusation that's completely not credible. And and he had to, you know, answer it. And and this was days and days and days of doing this. And uh, what I heard from people close to him is that that really got to him. That that contribute in addition to the national media pylon and the democratic attacks on him and and all, all that stuff. It was also just having to answer uh, really truly outlandish accusations uh, all the time leading up to uh, the Senate hearing that that contributed to it. So. I think that's totally fair. I do think that I should I should uh, like make a confession here that my experience of that Kavanaugh story was kind of unique in that I actually was on parent I was on paternity leave at the time, so I was not covering the the politics of it or the you know the day to day story. I was actually experiencing it from Disney World with my children, uh, where I was for those two <laughs> weeks actually walking around like Magic Kingdom and Epcot Center and getting like push notifications on my phone. And it was a very surreal experience, I I should say. Uh, But I still, when I look back at the Trump era, and maybe I'm in the minority here, that's that whole episode still to me, it was the most kind of the, the, the hottest, the most high temperature, the craziest that uh, the national discourse felt like, Maybe you could also add on like January 6th eventually, which was at the very tail end. But like when I think of all the periods of a very chaotic Trump presidency, that was the time where I felt like people were most angry and frankly, kind of uh, losing their sense of proportion and uh, and propriety. Like definitely that 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 means some journalists, some people in the media, Democrats, Republicans. I just felt like everybody was losing their minds every day. And well, you that, know that Dahlia so, Lithwick, yeah. uh, here's the line, the veteran judicial reporter Dahlia Lithwick wrote that she'd been unable to return to the Supreme Court because she was still so angry. What? You're a Supreme Court reporter. That is not your job. And to just agree with you, McKay, it's the only time, only two-week period I can think of in D.C., um, in my entire 20 year career here, where you couldn't really talk to people who were otherwise your friends. It was, it had really, um, it had become so personal outside of what had actually happened, not happened, the accusation and any evidence for it. It was in the height of the Me Too movement and everyone was bringing their personal experience to it. And well, it was this awful. Is the- well, this is the key, and I, I write about that at the top of the piece, that like the the problem was that Brett Kavanaugh, the confirmation stopped being about Brett Kavanaugh and started being about this thing that everybody was projecting their entire life experiences onto and these kind of high-pitched debates about uh, the nature of predation and privilege and, um, and all the Me Too debates we'd already been having. And he almost kind of blurred into abstraction while we had these like really pitched fights about all these other things. And Kavanaugh was just kind of the stand in for the, those fights. And that's why I think uh, it, it got so 
kind of out of hand. Um, no, I, I think you're a hundred percent right about that. And what Sarah said about relationships is really interesting because I had relationships with people, you know, across the, on the other side of the aisle that I've had for decades and they were very deeply strained in those moments. And after the sort of the confirmation was over, it was sort of, there was as if amongst, amongst folks of goodwill, it was like a kind of a fever passed. But, you know, you would even get accusations sort of directed at me, for example, that opposition to my opposition to Donald Trump, in part because of so many of these corroborated sexual predation claims against him, or Roy Moore because of corroborated claims of sexual predation, that my opposition to those figures was just all subterfuge, setting me up to really be, you know, to setting me up to have fake credibility defending Kavanaugh. I mean, that's how weird a lot of this got. And, and I think one of the things I think that is going to be, and I, that I think uh, about your piece that's interesting to me as a human being named Brett Kavanaugh, as opposed to a person uh, in the office of justice, uh, as a human being named Brett Kavanaugh, how do you emerge into any kind of normal life after that moment? Right. Because you're a human, Especially you want to have as it. McKay said, for the rest of us, it turned into an abstraction. But when you're Brett Kavanaugh, that's not an abstraction. And when you're friends with someone, that's not an abstraction. You are talking about a person and his family and his life and treating it as if it needs to be the vehicle for this larger movement. Again, to quote from the piece, um, uh, Irene Carmen, a feminist journalist who covered the Kavanaugh hearings closely, told me the episode was especially painful because it took place at a moment when accusations of sexual misconduct seemed at last to be taken seriously. Quote, people had started to think this time would be different and it wasn't, and that's why it was so crushing. They just, that, that means that it was a vehicle right? It was not about the specific. It was about a moment to finally have vindication for all these other wrongs that had happened in the past with a no acknowledgement that there was a person, there were specifics, this was real. Uh, it, it was very, um, it was incredible to me as someone who again had endorsed and supported very publicly against my party, my career, everything to say that Elena Kagan should be confirmed to the Supreme Court, that then when I say that Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed to the Supreme Court, again, like you said, David, um, the, the things that were said to me were outrageous and particularly uh, hard because of my own experiences at about that age. Uh, I had to, as many people did, no doubt, I had to work through things from my past and sort of how dare these people question who I am and what my life experience is because you happen to disagree with me about something. But that's, that's how the narrative happened across the country. And McKay, what something I do appreciate about your piece, even if I disagree with it is what David said. Um, you know, the headline, of course, I, you didn't write is Brett Kavanaugh out for revenge. Um, I, the magazine I, headline is also different. I think it's like, whose side is Brett Kavanaugh on or something like that. But, anyway. but it ends with, uh, and I'm just going to read this paragraph, which brings us back to the nature of the Supreme Court itself. There may be no greater indictment of America's democratic system than the fact that Brett Kavanaugh's feelings are so potentially consequential. 
But at a moment when the court is routinely called upon to fill the void left by a dysfunctional political system, a single justice has enormous power to set policy and settle national debates. If Brett Kavanaugh is quote unquote dangerous, as his critics contend, it's not because he is part of some brazen right wing conspiracy. It's because he has managed to ascend to the height of American power while remaining, perhaps even to himself, a living Rorschach test. Um, where I take issue is the idea, there's an assumption that Brett Kavanaugh's feelings are so consequential because other people have projected that if it were them, they wouldn't be able to set aside what happened to them. And I think it really misses a possibility um, that Brett Kavanaugh has a much larger capacity for forgiveness in a way that um, his friends don't. And in a way that it is hard, I think, for some people to even imagine, including the people who, and I don't want to, who did this to him, that they can't imagine ever forgiving someone for doing that to them, even though they are the ones who did it. Uh, what about the possibility that, that Justice Kavanaugh actually very much wants to and can set that aside in a way that perhaps... Um, you could you could draw more comparisons between more comparisons and non-comparisons between him and Justice Thomas. Yeah, well, so uh, I think that's interesting. And and I should say that if you read the piece that I start with the question of is he out for revenge, because that's where a lot of liberals and, and critics of Brett Kavanaugh are beginning. Right. They assume because of his testimony and because of uh, maybe some of their own projection, as you note, Sarah, um, that he he's going that that he's going to use his perch to exact partisan revenge. Where I end up in the piece is not actually quite there. You know, if you if you get if you read through the whole piece, the the other possibility is that Brett Kavanaugh. And this is a real thing about him that all of his friends will talk about too. He doesn't he the, his position of being like a public supervillain is very uncomfortable for him. He doesn't want to be that. Right. That's part of the reason I start the piece kind of narrating the confirmation process from the point of view of his like rich liberal neighbors in Chevy Chase. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of my actually the part that I enjoyed most of both the reporting and the writing, just kind of driving around, walking around his like affluent neighborhood in Chevy Chase and seeing the no justice, no peace signs and and talking to people who knew him. I, I mean, that like like the, so anyway, but my point is. He he is somebody who also, and all of his friends will to say this, wants to kind of be able to move past all this. Like he he actually doesn't. You talk about Clarence Thomas; they are very different personalities, right? Clarence Thomas is somebody who um, you know say, brags about how he puts a ninety nine cent sticker on his law school diploma because he takes elite credentials so unseriously, right? Uh, that is not Brett Kavanaugh. Like, Brett Kavanaugh is not uh, at war with the Ivy League or the establishment or even these liberal, uh, you know, the, the liberal media commentators. I have a quote from one of his friends who says that I don't think uh, Thomas or Alito, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to curse here, but I don't think they care uh, what the New York Times says about them. But I think Brett does. Right. So. So anyway, all of that is to say that it's not necessarily the case that he is actually out for revenge. But you're, the point you're making is that could he just set aside his personal feelings altogether, whether that is whether that means bitterness over the confirmation 
or his desire to be kind of readmitted into polite society and rule as a judge, you know, unbiased objectively. I think that's completely possible. I think he already has done that in some cases. But the, again, the the point that I, the, the, the thing that I came away from is that I think most Americans already assume that Supreme Court justices do that. If you look at polls, they overwhelmingly support the idea that the Supreme Court is by far the most functional and best institution in the American government, that they are trying to do the right thing, these justices. They are cloaked in the kind of uh, pomp and circumstance and formalism that the court, you know, encourages. And I, what the, the point that I was making is that all of that might be true, but it's also true that these are human beings. And if if so many Republicans and Brett Kavanaugh allies say that they were radicalized by that confirmation process, I think it's at least worth asking how that confirmation process might influence Brett Kavanaugh, whether it's radicalizing or something else. I think that that it would be silly to assume that there's that to just completely dismiss the idea that that could influence how he how he behaves going forward. You know, I think one one of the things that I think about this is. I One thing I, I liked about your piece is how you talked about how it's there. Are, there might be people on the left who or not might. There are people on the left who fear he was radicalized. And there are people on the right who hope he was radicalized. <laughs> right. Who want him to be more radicalized, in fact. Exactly. All these conservatives, like kind of MAGA types, I, I, I quote in the piece saying, like, why, why isn't he acting like the, you know, incredible Hulk that we saw in that one <laughs> Senate here? Like, that's that's the thought person they thought they were getting on the Supreme Court. And the fact that he hasn't turned into that on the bench is is very alarming to a lot of a, a certain kind of conservative. You know, the interesting thing to me is it's in a way, if if there has been an assault on your character as a human being that there's something fundamentally wrong with you, you know, and, and, and it's also an assault on your character in an interesting way to say that, but I, because I defend some, a movement defended me that I then owe them something uh, that I wouldn't otherwise, you know, that that's an assault on your integrity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in an interesting way, the best revenge to use that word would be just to be Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. <laughs> just right. to continue to be the human being you were, which, which rebuts both sides of this. And, and, and the, and so if I'm looking at it as an outside observer, what I'm looking at is I'm seeing Oh wow, yeah, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. Not the angry guy of the, you know, of of the right-wing hopes and the left-wing fears, but this judge who has a record, who has a particular temperament, who has a particular pr- approach and philosophy, and all of that, I'm not saying I can predict how he's going to rule in every single case, but nothing about his um, record on the court so far surprises me in the least. Um, if you'd asked me how, what kind of justice was he going to be going in on the front end before the Christine Blasey Ford stuff. And in an interesting way, I think, I mean, I, I admire that response. I mean, I admire that response. And in an interesting way, it is a kind of way of asserting yourself, uh, independently of this controversy. Cause 
it, it seems like the worst possible response would be either would be that that vengeance mindset because it's it's making you beholden to a movement and reactive to a movement and that's not what a justice wants to be okay now there is one thing that is incorrect in your story mm. uh, you say that as a judge on the dc circuit uh kavanaugh spent most of his time on wonky regulatory cases which meant his conservative voting record attracted little attention in the culture wars and when a politically charged case did fall into his lap in 2017, involving an undocumented 17-year-old immigrant seeking an abortion in Texas, Kavanaugh tried to find a middle ground. Except Kavanaugh, as a D.C. circuit judge, had the Heller case, the D.C. gun case. He had the Obamacare case. He had Yeah, the Obamacare wildly- case was definitely... Yeah, but come on. I mean, here, here, yes, the Obamacare case actually is the most notable exception, right? That I mean, that is that that was one that came up a lot during the vetting. But if you look, if you talk to some of the people like um, in the uh, the kind of conservative legal movement who were uh, debating and discussing Trump's shortlist at the time before Kavanaugh was nominated, like one of the the complaints you heard a lot was we don't have enough to go on to know how he would rule on abortion cases or uh, some of these other cases. Like the, the, some of the issues that most motivate or animate uh, a certain kind of kind of conservative legal activist, uh, they would say the, D, the D.C. Circuit is, a, you know, they they tend to have a certain kind of case. So you have a really good sense of like where he is on Chevron. You don't necessarily have a really fleshed out view of where he is on abortion, right, uh, or on Roe. And so, the, so anyway, that, that's all I was trying to, to convey. Of course, he had some high-profile cases. The Obamacare case was one that came up a lot um, in, in the run-up to his his nomination. But I, I, that that's that's the point I was trying to make. <laughs> I mean, compared to Gorsuch, who was on the Tenth Circuit, who actually had no cases like that, um, I, I just think that that made it seem like it was unusual or there's not a record to compare his record to now or his judicial writing to now. I think his opinions now, his votes now are incredibly consistent with the judge he was on the DC circuit. And that's a really interesting story. I know you don't want to take your readers necessarily into jurisprudential walk land as we do here, but it's relevant to the overall point, which is if he's the same judge in terms of his judicial philosophy that he was on the DC circuit, then doesn't that undermine the entire premise, or at least makes a more interesting premise? Well, it the, undermines uh, do, the revenge premise. It, it, yeah. Uh, yeah, it undermines the revenge premise, which again, I don't actually agree with. I don't think he is. At, like, if you read the whole piece, I think that's clear. But this is actually interesting. And this is a point that I heard a lot of like expert court watchers make to me, which is that like in the, even though he's now been on the court for almost, you know, for more than two years, that's actually a very small sample size for a Supreme Court justice, right? Like these are people who serve lifetime, uh, are, are on the bench for their whole lives. And you can't, it, a lot of the people I talked to were like, well, I'd be careful to draw, you know, sweeping conclusions about what kind of justice he's going to be based on just these first two years. Because uh, for a lot of justices, it takes more than a couple of years to evolve into the kind of justice you're going to be. So that's like the actual big caveat hanging over all of this is we still don't know totally what kind of justice he'll be. And um, I know people on the left and the right are waiting to see how he will, you know, decide some high profile cases that are coming down the pipeline. So that so again, like, I think we'll learn more about it going forward. 
But anyway. And why not mention more of the hypocrisy? Uh, you know, you do spend a lot of time on the confirmation. You don't mention some of the more outrageous and false accusations that were made against him. Do I spend a lot of time on the confirmation? It felt like it. <laughs> I, actually did, I, I actually don't have anything about the confirmation. I have very little about it. I had in my outline a whole like section it. that was supposed to be about the confirmation. And I made the decision at that point. I we cannot weigh down the whole piece relitigating this because everybody already knows where they stand Fair. and you're but, not going to break any new, new information. But there's nothing themselves. about now the hypocrisy on the Andrew Cuomo side, those very same people. There's no frenzy around Andrew Cuomo from the press or from the very same people who mm, said that I, this was Okay, fine. I'm going to disagree with that. There's no, there's no, there's no media. Like, I, I think there was a, uh, we had a, a bit of a Not media frenzy about this. the Cuomo stuff. Well, sure. But I'm just saying we, no, there was well, a lot sure. of That's coverage. That's the point. Well, Brett Kavanaugh had a two week confirmation process. Andrew Cuomo, what, you couldn't still fit it in into office. a tight. Yes, that's true. Unfortunately, he doesn't, you know, we, the media doesn't get to decide who's governor of New York. <laughs> no uh, comparison. And I think if you polled the average New York journalist, they would not pick Cuomo. But anyway. No, uh, you talk about with sort of a side eye, uh, referencing others' side eye, I suppose, about uh, Kavanaugh being allowed to take communion. No reference to the side eye of others. I mean, it just felt like it came from a very specific perspective, assuming that he's a bad guy instead of what it would feel like if you were wrongly accused of all of this. I think this might be, Sarah, where you're projecting some of your own feelings about Kavanaugh <laughs> and the confirmation onto this piece. I, that, that, the communion thing, actually, I thought was really interesting. But again, that whole first section is supposed to be narrated from the point of view. And I would say with an arched eyebrow, uh, toward those neighbors, but those kind of rich, you know, Chevy Chase neighbors um, channeling how they were feeling about all of this, which I don't think I uh, took them overly seriously, but I guess readers can decide if they read that piece. I, I just want readers, I mean, listeners to know this is a, uh, a, a discourse conducted with obvious Zoom affection, <laughs> even though... <laughs> There's lots though, of smiling and uh, and and you know heart emojis coming through the chat on Zoom. Well, look, McKay's used to this from me because we've done it in the political context when it's about yes. one of my candidates or anything else. So McKay gets this in private from me plenty. Listen, uh, now, I would yeah. much rather take somebody just like calling me up and arguing with me about a piece as opposed to the past four years, which is like planting stories about me and weird right wing websites and. Like, oh. trying to get me fired, you know, like this, this is a much more healthy approach to uh, disagreeing with the uh, story. So I do appreciate not fire you, McKay. Do not. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I this is a little bit of a digression, um, but it was interesting to me, you know, you brought up calling up all of these clerks. So I and I, I was I'd be interested to know your experience in the what a lot of people don't understand is in the run up to a Supreme court nomination. And this didn't happen with the Barrett nomination because it was a super compressed process and it was sort of almost a foregone conclusion before it even occurred. But with others, if you, if you're in the media and you're covering uh, the Supreme court or you're writing about the Supreme court, you're going to get the clerk offensive. And that is the former clerks of the judges who are up for potential nomination. (laughs) They're going to write you. They're going to share with you memoranda. 
Um, and I never encountered a clerk army like the Kavanaugh mm. clerk army. It was the SEAL Team Six. <laughs> and I know I'm mixing Army and Navy. Okay, I get it. But it was the SEAL Team Six <laughs> of clerk of clerk forces. And I, I was just wondering if you got a sense of that in talking to former Kavanaugh clerks mm. in, for this piece. Yeah, well, actually, can I make a broader observation first about the, the Supreme Court clerk like breed? That is a very specific breed of person who I don't think I had um, had a lot of experience with before this. And you probably both have. But like that, uh, you know, I've you know, I, like I said, I've covered politics for a long time and I know a lot of different kinds of, you know, staffers and candidates and people. The Supreme Court clerk, it, it's they, they take themselves very seriously, which, you know, they're successful people in an in, in important profession. So that's fair enough. They um, but they also like it, it, it is a weird relationship where their devotion to their former bosses is just like unlike anything that I've ever seen. You know, like there, you know, Sarah was has been very devoted over the years to people her the candidates she believes in. But like nothing like this, like these are. It's, it's like almost fanatical. And I, what, one thing I will say for the Kavanaugh clerk army in particular is I, I would actually say they are very organized. And I heard a lot about the kind of war room that they set up during the confirmation. And, uh, and you know, they were ultimately successful. But they I will also say they were very, um, like, polite and genteel compared to some of the other uh, the, the other clerk teams that I talked to. Um, not that they weren't, you know, serious and and effective in driving a certain message, but they, uh, the, this kind of goes with my broader, you know, take on Kavanaugh, which is like they don't see the media as the enemy of the people, you know, like they they actually like what they I appreciated they wanted to have good faith conversations about it and point out which pieces of journalism they thought were fair and which pieces weren't. And, you know, there have been a number of books and I've read all of them now about the Kavanaugh confirmation. And uh, a lot of them had like worked on those books or worked with the authors and uh, pointed out different things that they liked and didn't like. So anyway, I, I, I actually didn't mind working with the the Kavanaugh clerk team. I thought that they were, um, they were, you know, fair and, uh, and, and professional. Uh, but overall the Supreme court clerk, uh, like category of human is is one that I had not encountered, and uh, I it, I don't know I don't know what else to say oh, about it. <laughs> I meant I meant SEAL Team Six of Clerk Armies um, as entirely as a compliment. Uh, there, it's a very effective group of. But again, I was dealing with his his appellate clerk. Yeah. Clerks, you know, the, mm -hmm. the folks who had clerked for him. Well, I, I, he... Some of those were the ones that I had talked to, too. The other thing that I would say about the clerks is that, like, um, they, they <laughs> at least in his in his case, they've all been through this, like, very intense battle, you know. And so at this point, you know, their boss has the job for the rest of his life. Like, they've I think they've toned down as, probably to a certain extent like that like an Atlantic profile is not the scariest thing to them because at the end of the day their boss is gonna have this job either way you know so like the, I, I thought it was helpful to get their perspective and you know they've obviously gotten to know him very well but they 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 weren't like you know bombarding me with uh 
with demands or, you know, angry phone calls or emails throughout the process. I wish you had spent more time on the comparison between Thomas and Kavanaugh. I think there's an interesting jurisprudential comparison to make. Obviously, you can start from the perspective of the two most contentious confirmation hearings in U.S. history uh, and how and you do speak about it in the piece. But like, I think it could have been the frame of the entire piece uh, is sort of the difference in how confirmation hearings shifted uh, between the 90s and now and then how how it can look, how two different justices can wear that. I'm wondering, as you talk to people, um, what else didn't get included in the piece on that line? Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, I in the kind of near the top of the piece, I write about how the fears about whether Kavanaugh would be radicalized basically go back to, to Thomas, right? There are fears that, that the, the idea that Thomas, um, after going through his confirmation process, kind of retreated from it, public life, rarely spoke in public, became more uh, more and more conservative, that liberal fears about Kavanaugh were that he would follow the same trajectory. Um, and as I write in the piece, he didn't really. It, it's funny, though, I, I have this little kind of detail that Thomas actually thought initially that he would kind of uh, take Kavanaugh under his wing when he got to the court, uh, because he had been through something similar and uh, and I talked to Armstrong Williams, a longtime friend of of Thomas's, who said, "Oh yeah, he you know he wanted to kind of teach him, teach Kavanaugh not to bother trying to like ingratiate yourself with the left or the people who had smeared you. Just you know, let your own work speak for your, itself, and and don't bother with the rest." And what I ended up finding is that that was not in, that was not Kavanaugh's uh, inclination. He ended up, if anybody gravitating toward John Roberts, who really ended up being kind of his, uh, if he had a mentor, it would have been John Roberts. And he, Kavanaugh loved Roberts well before he got to the Supreme Court, um, stuck with him, especially through that first year, um, and, and kind of in style and temperament is very similar to Roberts. Uh, Let me yeah, give you an alternative right, version of, that, of the, that same fact pattern which is that when Gorsuch was nominated to the court, um, he was a, a very important, uh, you know, fourth vote, let's call it. They needed a rock-solid fourth vote. Mm -hmm. When Kavanaugh gets to the court, um, he's replacing Kennedy, but he is not going to be the fifth vote. He's going to now be the fourth vote. And Roberts is then going to move into the catbird seat as the fifth vote. The Gorsuch vote was meant to be the super conservative rib rock. The Kavanaugh seat was meant to be someone who could woo that fifth vote because they did not think they would get any of the other four seats on the court. So Roberts was going to sit there as both chief and swing vote for the foreseeable future. And so Kavanaugh was actually sent to woo Roberts not the other way around. And when you look at some of the opinions in the past year, specifically some of the pandemic law opinions, I think David will agree, it's the other way around. It's it's Kavanaugh courting Roberts. Yeah, but Sarah, uh, in I the past year, things have changed though, right? Because now with Amy Coney Barrett's addition to the well, court, sure. the balance changed. So like, the, I, I do think you're right that early on, there that, that was the dynamic. But yeah, one one thing I heard from somebody uh, inside the court uh, was that, you know, Roberts is not in, really in charge anymore in the sense that, like, he's not the deciding vote. Like, he he can't just decide uh, what happens. And so 
Well, um, he's the one assigning opinions, and he, that's sure pretty, he's the chief justice, important. and that that matters. But he's not the he's not the swing vote. He's not the deciding vote. It, to the extent that there is a swing, you have to have two swing votes, basically. And Correct. so it's probably going to be Roberts and somebody else, whether and that's Gorsuch or Kavanaugh. It's no, mostly no. Kavanaugh. It's Kavanaugh. But, <laughs> well, but there have been some where it's it's Gorsuch, right? And and when you talk to people, they'll say depending on what kind of case it is. Kavanaugh is more likely to be the swing vote, but maybe it could be somebody else. It depends on what the issue is. So again, we, we don't know exactly what the, like we're, we're very early in this, in the lifespan of a Supreme Court justice. So we'll see how it evolves. Let, let's come back on advisory opinions in 2032 and, <laughs> and see what, how things have shaken out. Let's you do know, it. I'm going to, I'm going to say I read your piece and I came away from it feeling like I admire, based on your reporting, I admire the way he is trying to navigate this post-confirmation battle. That's how I came away from it. Um, as a person who's a human being who was social and was engaged in a community in a very sort of real, tangible way prior to a confirmation battle that's one of the most toxic events in recent American history until the post-election fight, uh, you know, in, from November through January 6th. And is trying to re-enter society to be the same person as much as he can as he was before. Um, which to me, you know, this is such a theme of advisory opinions as judges are people too. They're not, you know, mm -hmm. philosophy, you know, yeah. they're not ideologic, you know, ideology, uh, ideology bot 9000, you know what, or, <laughs> and it just came across to me that this is a guy who is, who is trying to recover Something that he lost, yes. something that was yep. good that he lost. And nobody really knows how to do that. Let's be honest. Nobody knows how to do that, especially in this climate and this time. And that's the impression that I got. Um, and that is to the extent that there was and that the, the, the uh, you know, the, the headline about revenge and all of that, it just was, look, he went through something horrible and then now he's trying to still be Brett Kavanaugh, both jurisprudentially and individually. That's how I, that's kind of how I took, that's what I took from the piece. I think that's a great place to end it. McKay, any last thoughts? No, I appreciate how coming on and, and fighting with you, Sarah, as always. I hope that I can come <laughs> back again uh, next time I write a piece that, that it pisses you off. I, I hope we can uh, do that. <laughs> you bet, McKay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. That was um, what diplomats refer to, Sarah, as a frank exchange of ideas. 
Any any closing thoughts now that McKay is uh, not listening? Well, I'm sure he'll listen to the podcast, but any closing thoughts before we move on to NRA and Facebook? I feel like a lot of people are going to listen to that conversation and be dissatisfied with it on circular, like all the reasons um, from both sides, above and below. And, um, you know, I get that. I just want to be very clear. I understand why you may not be satisfied with that conversation. Um, is what it is, right? That's sort of, that's uh, adulting <laughs> in the sense that like, there's a situation that I don't like. I can't do anything about it. There's a story about that. Uh, and I didn't like the story. I felt like it came from a pretty specific angle and a little unlike McKay in some respects. Um, you know, he he entered the story from the perspective of the neighbors, the liberal neighbors. And I felt like that colored how you walked through it. You walked through it as someone who already bought into that specific narrative. And I feel like at least half the country doesn't buy into that narrative. No, not half of Atlantic readers, I will grant you. But there's a reason that that there is at least some data to support the idea that that is why uh, Republicans gained seats in 2018. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think this, yeah, this in the Senate for sure. Yeah. And then of course, from a like judicial nerd standpoint, I felt like it was too political and not enough law. Like I wanted Atlantic readers to get to know some of the jurisprudential questions. Um, you know, his Obamacare opinion on the DC circuit is really relevant. His Heller dissent is really relevant to me. If you're going to judge him as a justice now, and um, and even talking about his voting record, the, the percentage he's voted with Kagan versus Roberts versus CT or Gorsuch. Well, let's break that apart because if it's a unanimous opinion, take those out. Like I want the non-unanimous ones and then what are they about? What actually divided them? And if you want to argue after looking at specific cases that, yeah, these are the reasons on the top, you know, on the surface, but actually you can read into it. Obviously, I'm great with that. We do it on this podcast all the time. But you can't just stick to the surface and say, see, here's evidence. You know, one of the things I thought about it as I read it was, so I'm re, I, uh, as I was reading it, uh, the way I summed it up our conversation, it's how I felt about it that, oh, look, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court and he's still Brett Kavanaugh. And to me, there's something really admirable about trying to continue to pursue that course of being the person that you've always been before uh in in spite of this just hurricane that you you know he was in in just in the middle of this unbelievable hurricane i honestly think this is such a polarizing issue sarah that i will bet you that his atlantic readers will be angry at him because it didn't it was not a story that condemned brett kavanaugh yeah that's probably true uh I, I think, I mean, that's how, that's how in, in incredibly polarizing this is still to this day. Um, I hate it, David. Is that, I hate it. I know. I know. I know. No, I, I know. And I just, I, I, I've said I, it earlier and I just want to be very clear. I am not arguing I am biased, unbiased or that I am a neutral observer in this. I'm just not. And, um, and that makes, it's unlike me. I think I am able to set aside a lot of stuff. Uh, when I talk about issues and I think it's what makes me a good political operative for the most part. And, uh, yeah, I would have been terrible at this because, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm angry about it. I still am. 
Well, I, I, I tried to be a, an, a neutral, unbiased observer of this during the confirmation process. Uh, as I said, I, at the very beginning said, look, if Blasey Ford's allegations are true, if there's a preponderance of the evidence, not even proof beyond a reasonable doubt, a preponderance of the evidence that um, her allegations were true, I think he should step aside. And I just thought the evidence was lacking severely for a lot of reasons we could talk about for a long time. And then as it went to the Deborah Ramirez allegations and the Julie Swetnick, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, and if you want to approach it to see what my thought process was in the time, if you really want to dive into this, I wrote a long piece um, that broke down all of the allegations in detail. And I just, uh, legendary producer Caleb, I just put it into chat for the show notes. So if you really want to get into it, um, this is where I, and I, you know, I tried my best to come at this from, I'm neutral about it. In fact, you know, there were other judges that I might've preferred to be nominated just from a sort of a philosophical standpoint to Kavanaugh. Um, but I tried to be as neutral as possible about it. And I just, I just didn't see it. I just didn't see it. And um, so anyway. Uh, well, let's talk shall we another hot button issue, bankruptcy law. So. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, well, the hot button issue is the NRA. Is the NRA. Oh, yes. I thought it was bankruptcy. I thought people were just really pumped. All these headlines. <laughs> Um, all right. So the NRA filed bankruptcy in Texas a while back that was dismissed without prejudice by a Texas bankruptcy judge. We have not gotten the chance to talk about it because we've had so many awesome interviews, but we wanted to save a little time here at the end to talk about it. Um, you know, this would have been the result, I think, in almost every bankruptcy court in the country uh, the only potential differences were, I think some bankruptcy judges would have dismissed it with prejudice, uh, by the way, meaning the NRA can refile this bankruptcy petition if they want to. Uh, I think some judges would have found that the lack of good faith here would have prevented them from doing that again, at least with, you know, without certain caveats or something. Uh, so just to do a quick discussion of it, the judge found that they had filed this bankruptcy in order to basically stay the ongoing litigation brought by the state of New York against them. And that when asked, Wayne LaPierre said that they were in great financial condition. And that means you can't file bankruptcy. Now, you can file bankruptcy in anticipation of being in financial distress. For instance, um, I'm, you know, <laughs> you, your company has, uh, something has gone horribly wrong. A lot of people were injured. There's now a mass tort claim. Hundreds of lawsuits have been filed. None of them have moved to liability stage. You can file bankruptcy in anticipation of knowing that you're about to be put into bankruptcy because you know you were liable for that mass tort. And when that happens, it does stay those lawsuits against you. And basically what happens is you get all your creditors in line. They set aside some money for the mass tort. It basically organizes how this is all going to work out. And then those tort lawsuits proceed and we actually determine liability uh, in that process. But here what the NRA appears to have been trying to do, and I say that with some question mark because strategically I don't really understand what they were trying to do here. But New York has used its police power uh, to argue that the NRA should be dissolved. The bankruptcy court, like it, 
Police power issues are not within really the bankruptcy court's purview. And then to go in and say, and we have no financial problems. Okay, so this is just to delay what New York is doing. They had some argument, of course, that like, well, you know, New York is seeking money or, you know, if they dissolve us, obviously that will have some financial repercussions. But uh, bankruptcy law is pretty clear. It has to be directly financial, not there are financial repercussions to the police power. Um, so this was a stupid lawsuit. The filing in Texas, we already talked about the sort of jurisdictional issues with that. Uh, it was dismissed as could have been easily predicted. It's a pretty good opinion, though. Recommend it. Uh, shout out to our Texas bankruptcy judges. Woot, woot. Yeah, you know, I I would summar, summarize this opinion as you cannot file bankruptcy to own the lib. In, in this case, the lib was the New York Attorney General who's pursuing proceedings against the NRA. And the key line is, based on the statements of counsel and the evidence in the record, the court finds that the primary purpose of the bankruptcy filing was to avoid potential disillusion and the New York Attorney General enforcement action. So this was a defensive move in another court proceeding uh, to try to forestall another proceeding. That's not the purpose of bankruptcy. And Sarah, you know, as you as you identified, they sort of had this legal strategy and a PR strategy. And the PR strategy was at odds with the legal strategy because they're trying to assure everybody, man, we are still a mighty powerful force. We don't have any financial problems. We're totally cool financially. Oh, but we filed bankruptcy. <laughs> and as you said, it's a completely different situation than like, say, you've got, you, let's say you're a, a manufacturer of brakes and you're very profitable. But then all of a sudden you realize that, oh, one of our, our brakes have a, de- a, you know, a product defect and we're about to get hit with a $500 million class action lawsuit that's going to have some merit anticipatory filing bank, you know, filing anticipatory bankruptcy there, filing bankruptcy because the anticipation of the massive liability is one thing. This is not that thing. So yeah, it's not a super surprising outcome. All right. Do we want to talk Facebook? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this is, uh, and we should disclose um, that the dispatch is a um, part of Facebook's fact checking program. So Get that out there. So the oversight board, which is this idea that Facebook had, came up with to say, okay, look, we, um, we're the largest social media company in the world. Uh, a lot of people don't understand our moderation decisions. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up a sort of a Supreme Court of Facebook. We're going to bind ourselves to its decisions. And that Supreme Court of Facebook is going to act like a Supreme Court of the United States it's going to issue printed opinions that give some people some ideas on how our moderation rules are interpreted. And a lot of people sort of say, ugh, why are we even talking about this? This is a fake court, blah, blah, blah. My position is, well, when you've set up a independent entity or quasi-independent entity, bound yourself to it, and it's going to determine the moderation decisions on a platform that hundreds of millions of people use including leaders of nations, it's worth talking about. Um, And we don't have a whole lot of time, but I'll I'll just say the interesting thing about this, I read the whole thing, wrote about it in time. The interesting thing about this is it it really dealt with this issue of how should Facebook, 
which is also going to inform sort of how social media companies think in general. How should Facebook think about in powerful influencers on its platform? Because one of the arguments has been about moderation decisions is how do you treat powerful influencers like a president, like a prime minister, like a secretary of state, like you name it. Do you kind of give them more freedom on the platform because they're what they say is newsworthy? And Facebook actually has a newsworthiness exception to some of its moderation rules. Um, do you just treat them just the same way you treat anybody else? Or because their words are so powerful and they have the ability to impact the real world in a much more profound way than, you know, if um, John, the insurance agent, posts about, say, the election, um, do you put a higher level of scrutiny? And the, the oversight board functionally decided on a higher level of scrutiny without so saying that. It essentially said that all the same rules are going to apply, but context matters for each, for an influencer speech. And the context that matters is how powerful they are. And so that there should be specialized staff that Facebook has insulated from political pressure that evaluates powerful influencer speech according to the, 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 its potential real world impact. And my conclusion about that, Sarah, is that essentially what the oversight board was saying is, hey, powerful influencers, you're, we're ordering Facebook to apply a heightened level or extra degree of scrutiny to your speech. And I have to think this is heavily January 6th informed. I think a lot of that changed after January 6th. I think you can look at social media content issues as uh, pre-January 6th and post-January 6th. I think we'll say that 10 years from now. I think it is the KT boundary of social media platforms uh, for my dinosaur fans out there. Or asteroid fans, depending on which side of that you came out on, I guess. <laughs> I mean, we should be asteroid fans. We benefited. Um, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm not an I'm a fan of that asteroid. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Yeah. That specific future answer. asteroids, less of a fan. Right. Less of a fan. But yeah, I mean, I I I admit January sixth impacted me. I did not think what happened on January sixth was a reasonable possibility in the United States of America. Before we go, there was a judicial confirmation hearing that happened uh, this week where a district court, federal district court nominee, was asked by the Republican Louisiana senator uh, what rational basis review was. And her first answer was uh, it's the lowest level of review by the Supreme Court for state actions. And then he said, yeah, but can you like name the standard? And she said, no, I cannot right now. And you know, at a much lesser degree, Twitter kind of blew up about whether that was disqualifying. I was curious what you thought about it. We haven't talked about this before um, because it, to me, it felt a little like a standardized test in the sense that some people are really good when they're put on the spot and other people's whole brains go blank. And so it actually doesn't tell us much about whether she knows what rational basis review is when you get asked on the spot to name it. Now, someone I saw compared it to like, that's like a surgeon not knowing what the heart is. Um, I mean, I guess it would be more like asking a surgeon on the spot, what are the names of the four ventricles of the heart? Yeah, like they definitely should know that. But if in a moment of extreme stress, when all the cameras are literally on you, if you suddenly forget what the four ventricles of the heart are, 
I actually still think you probably know what they are as a surgeon. But I'm curious what you thought of it, David, and whether you think those sorts of questions, which are becoming more prevalent in these lower level judicial confirmation hearings, are good, fair, bad. There's a better way to do them. Um, I have mixed I have mixed feelings very quickly. One is uh, there was and, and I'm while you were while you were uh, asking the question, I was trying to find this. But there was a pretty a semi famous moment where a Trump trial court judge nominee completely failed to answer basic questions about trial procedure, just completely failed. And in his defense, he wasn't a trial, you know, he wasn't a trial lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. That and, was a little different also. They asked him whether he knew what a motion in limine was, and he did not know what it was at all. Not that he couldn't name the standard for it. That's, a, that's more like knowing, I don't know what the heart is versus name all four ventricles. Now, again, I'm not sure if that's disqualifying. In that case, he did not get confirmed. My point, in, and I was I posted his confirmation after I saw that because I thought I felt like he just didn't even take the confirmation seriously. That um, because I had a, a boss when I was a uh, when I was a young lawyer who um, was nominated for federal district court judge, and you would not believe how much he prepared for his hearing, and it was two questions, and he was done. But he prepared for we literally for weeks, and so I, I kind of took this as. Did you take it seriously? And if you didn't take it seriously, do I want you on the bench? But then on the other hand, I'm also very down on these kind of gotcha questions like in politics. So what? name the prime minister of Uzbekistan. Oh, you don't know the prime minister of Uzbekistan and you're going to be talking to him if you're, you know. So some of this is like, hey, there's a gotcha question with with technical lingo. Eh, not as much of a fan super basic stuff and you're not answering it and you don't even know what it is, then I'm going to have some pause there. So where does rational basis review fall on that line? Because I think it's somewhere in between name the president of Uzbekistan and do you know what a motion in limine is? I mean, I think saying, okay, it's a lowest level of review and then, then not necessarily being able to quote exactly how the Supreme Court phrases that um, is directionally correct, whereas I have no clue what a motion in limine is, is uh, when you're about to be a trial judge um, is a, a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, look, I didn't think it was great. I think you probably should be able to muddle through the standard, but it, it did as I like watched the video felt much more like the standardized test deer in the headlights moment where like over drinks that night, she was like, oh my God. I mean, reasonably related to the, you know, like she's saying it in her head. Um, it, it, to me, did not show a lack of preparation that, you know, that doesn't mean someone should be a federal judge necessarily, but that alone is not dispositive to me. That's, I guess, where I came out. Right. Well, and he, and she also knows he's probably sitting there with a quote from the court that is yeah. the precise definition of <laughs> rational basis review. And if she can't remember that precise definition, she's going to be roasted. So yeah. Yeah, that feels different. All right, David. Uh, at Monday, maybe we'll have opinions. I hope. I hope. I, I mean, surely we will, because the next Monday is Memorial Day. We're not going to have opinions then. Surely, surely. Surely. But we'll have a great advisory opinions nonetheless. And this has been a great advisory opinions. My goodness. Uh, look forward to getting the listener feedback on this one, Sarah. Um, please go as... I say every time, please go rate us on Apple Podcasts. 
Uh, Please subscribe to our feed and check out thedispatch.com and we will be back with you on Monday.